Good morning. So I love things that are interesting, things that are unique, things that are abstract. Um, I think majority of us love things that are different, things that are not the usual. Uh, growing up, I remember in middle school, the cool thing to do in middle school, and it's not popular at all anymore, but the cool thing to do in middle school was collect baseball cards. Did anybody else collect baseball cards whenever you were younger? Okay, there's a couple. The cool baseball cards, the one that nobody else had, would be like that rookie card. That rookie card of somebody who is now extremely good at their sport. Uh, someone who, at the beginning, nobody knew was going to be as great as they are. If you got that rookie card, if you got that unique card, that interesting card, that made you a little bit better as far as the baseball collecting goes. I am a very unique, very interesting person. All cards on the table here, I love infomercials. Yeah, it's, it's really weird, I know. I love infomercials. Infomercials, most people are like, that is the weirdest thing ever. I love them. I love to see what people are creating. I love to see what people are selling. One of my favorite shows now is the show Shark Tank. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on ABC. Uh, it's a group of multimillionaires who are sitting there, and people then come, and they present their new invention, their new idea, uh, as trying to get investors in. They're saying, hey, this product that I have just created, it's unique. It's interesting. It's unlike anything you've seen before. And they're trying to get these people to buy into it. It's the unique, the interesting, the thing that they, they haven't seen before that usually brings in the money. One of my favorite books then, because I like the unique, I like the interesting, is the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a very interesting, very unique book. One of the things that makes the book of Hebrews so interesting to us is the fact that the author of the book of Hebrews, it's unknown. We can't definitely say it is this person. We can guess and say most likely it is the author Paul, but we can't be for certain. Both internal and external evidence never really say the author of the book of Hebrews is 100% for sure Paul. Our best guess, based upon writing, based upon the style of writing, the time of the writing, it most likely is Paul. So one of the things that makes the book of Hebrews interesting to me is the fact that we don't know the background information of it. If I could sum up the entire book of Hebrews, it would be Jesus is better than, and insert a blank, Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. Christ is better than the law. Christ is a better high priest. Christ is better than all. That's the summary of the book of Hebrews. I've taken 13 chapters and just presented it to you in one sentence. Christ is better than, and you insert a blank there. The, <clears throat> something that all of us experience throughout life, there's pain in life. There's letdown. People fail us. One of the reasons I love the book of Hebrews is because Christ is better than. No matter how great your boss is, Christ is better than that boss. No matter how great your friends are, Christ is still better. No matter how great your parents, your family is, Christ is still better. And on the opposite side of that same coin, no matter how poor of a boss you have, no matter how poor your friends are, no matter how poor your family is, every time they have let you down, which they will, Christ is still better. There's a coming a time when Christ will redeem all, redeeming our friendships, our relationships. Christ is better than all. 
there's an interesting section within this entire corpus of the book of Hebrews of Christ being better than. It's an interesting section. If you could turn with me to your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 4. And it's right at the end of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Three small little verses here in the entire book of Hebrews, 13 chapters of Christ is better than, showing Christ's superiority over everything. Let's read this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I'll be reading on the ESV today. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. I thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus Christ to come to this earth, Father, in the, in the form of a, a, a servant, Father. I thank you for the celebration that we have just had of the birth of the Savior, Lord, and I thank you that it ultimately is pointing towards Easter, to the, to the cross, Lord. I thank you for the redemption that we have through the, your Son's blood. Father, I pray that I would decrease and you would increase, Lord. I pray that my words would be spoken clearly, Father, uh, that I can uh, rightly divide your word. I pray this all in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Walk through me, or walk with me through this text here. The very first word is a very important word. The very first word of chapter 14, since. Notice that word, since. It's not a question. It's not an if. It's not a maybe. It's a direct. It is a since we have a high priest. There is a, a, a presupposition here. A presupposition of Christ is the high priest. Since we have a high priest, it doesn't say if we have a high priest or maybe he is the high priest, but since we have a great high priest, the direct uh, circumstance here of since carries a bunch of weight with it. The Bible is very clear that we do have a high priest in Christ. Brings up a bunch of questions, though. One of the problems of this is that we are not usually familiar with the term of a high priest. In our day, in our context, I've very rarely heard it outside of a biblical text, someone being referred to as a high priest. If you say to my dad, he's no longer Pastor Mike, he'd now be a high priest Curtis. That sounds very weird to us. I, I've rarely heard a high priest outside of a biblical context. We need to kind of step in and figure out what is the high priest? What, is, what are they referring to as Jesus as our high priest? If he is our high priest, what exactly does that mean? High priest is something that is unknown to us, very unfamiliar to us, but in the context of this writing, it would be very familiar. As soon as you say the word high priest, it automatically brings up all kinds of ideas, all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of uh, emotion that comes along with it because they understand their past a whole lot more than we do. The high priest, uh, he has a huge responsibility with this title of high priest. It's more than just a title. It's more than just uh, 
the guy that's the priest that's higher than all. With it comes a massive responsibility. The high priest is appointed by God, and he is a mediator between God and God's people. He stands in that gap. Once a year, the high priest, according to the Old Covenant, according to Leviticus chapter 16, would have a task. He would have a job. His job as high priest was to enter the temple on the Day of Atonement and make an atonement for sin. He would take the blood of an animal and he would sprinkle it across the mercy seat. This would cover sin for the nation, for God's people, the nation of Israel. That was his job. That was his responsibility. More than just a title, a huge responsibility that comes along with it. God was very particular in how he wanted this done. Very particular in the man and the way that it was done. He lays all of this out for us in Leviticus. Here is exactly how I want it to be done. So with that understanding of the high priest then, it's important to us to look at then Christ. How is Christ then our high priest? What is his role? What is it about Jesus that would allow him to take on this title of high priest? If we continue reading, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. It's an odd expression, passed through the heavens. What the text is referring to here is the ascension of Christ. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, Jesus standing here, Mount of Olives, he's with his disciples, and he gives them a mission. Go, be my witnesses to the rest of the world. And then he ascends up into the clouds. He rises up into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting to redeem his people once again. That is what Christ has done. He's higher than the sacrificial system. When the former high priest only offer a sacrifice once a year, Christ is daily our advocate to the Father. He has taken the place of the mediator between God's people, or between God's people and God, and he has stepped into that role, and instead of a once a year, as in the high priest would do, he now daily is at the right hand of the Father, making our way, saying, you know what, those are mine. That is how Christ is our high priest. Instead of the once a year, now it's a daily activity. He is constantly on our behalf interceding. He's the once and for all. He's the covering of the covenantal system. He's the covering of the old covenant now gone into the new. Brings up a great, great question then. I ask, I teach freshmen. I teach at a Christian school and I teach freshmen. One of the first things we always cover at the beginning of the school year is a simple question I believe every Christian should be able to answer and answer extremely well. That question is simply, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the gospel. Yes, that is the gospel. But what is the gospel? The answer that I always receive from freshmen, because their eighth grade teacher taught it to them, which is extremely great, and it's not a wrong answer, but it's not a complete answer. I ask them, what is the gospel? And I always get two words, good news. Absolutely. The gospel is good news. But in order to understand the good news, we must first understand the bad news. There is no good news without the bad news. The bad news is us. The bad news is me. The bad news is you. Imagine, if you will, we're all standing on the edge of a river. 
I'm from San Antonio. I'm living in San Antonio right now. We're at the San Antonio River, Riverwalk. If you've never been down there, beautiful place. It's a concrete river. I know it's a concrete river. It makes no sense. But it's a concrete river uh, in downtown San Antonio. We're all standing at the edge of this river, and we're, we're trying to get across. Because on the other side of this river is God. San Antonio River is a, a vast expanse. It's a large area. So I see this as a physics problem. It's simply, can I get all of my weight going forward far enough that my momentum will carry me then to the other side? So I call up a few friends. I've got some track star buddies. I've got some Olympians on my speed dial. And I say, hey, I need you to come down here and show me how to do this. And they say, okay, sure, we'll get down there. Apparently, I'm really good friends with Olympians, in case you were not aware of this. And so all of my friends and I are Olympians. Our track stars are all standing here at the side of the river walk, and I'm going to say, hey, Mr. Olympian, I'm going to have you go first. He's a long jumper, in fact. So I'm going to see how he does it. Because that's the best way, obviously. He's, he's trained in this. He knows how to jump extremely large distances. So he backs up, and he starts to sprint, and he runs. He puts his toes right at the edge of the river walk, jumps, extends, and lands about halfway across. I'm thinking, man, whew, that's an Olympian there. Didn't even make it halfway, barely. Things are looking great for me. I'm really excited to go on this now. By the way, the river walk is not so much river more as it is moving dirt. Uh, it's, it's not clear at all. It's um, dirty, dirty looking water. They drain it like once every year or every two years. They always find like wheelchairs and strollers and all kinds of lovely things in the bottom. Not a place you want to end up. Not a place I'm really excited to jump into. But I think, okay, here it is. I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm going to jump across. God's on the other side of this river. He's waiting for me. I'm going to do everything I can to get there. So I back up. I'm going to run. I'm sprinting as fast as I can. I do just like the Olympian did. I put my toes right at the edge. I push off. I extend. Splash. And I hit the water. I sink to the bottom. I'm now at the bottom of the river walk. In fact, I'm dead at the bottom of the river walk. There is no life within me until... Ephesians chapter 2 has six letters. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Six letters that change all of humanity. But God. Those six letters change everything. Because Christ, while I am dead at the bottom of the river walk, comes along, grabs me, brings me up, puts breath within my lungs, and escorts me across. That is the gospel. It's the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. That's the good news. The good news is Christ. The bad news is me. I did everything I could to reach that other side, and I failed miserably. There's nothing I can do to position myself. I cannot run fast enough. I cannot jump high enough to reach the other side of that river. Every time I try... I end up at the bottom dead. It is only Christ which brings us out of death, breathes life, and extends the hand of mercy to the other side. That is what the gospel is. This is great news. That's why the gospel can be referred to as good news, but first we need to understand the bad news to really understand how good this news is. If we look at this verse, it doesn't simply end with, with this. We have a responsibility now because of what Christ has done. 
Read with me verse 14 again. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Since Jesus, we hold fast. Hold fast is an odd expression. I don't say, hey, I'm going to hold fast to this. I usually wouldn't say that. Uh, Think of it as stick to or continue on with. And it says stick to our, in my version, it says confession. Hold fast our confession. I love translation. I believe it's the NIV and King James. Both translate this differently because it, it helps us understand that what is our confession. Our confession is our profession. Our confession is our profession of who Christ is. Let us hold on. Let us hold fast. Let us stick to what we are professing Christ to be. What we have professed Christ has done for us, stick to that. Do not forget that. Do not forget what Christ has done for you. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. These are great words of encouragement. Great words of encouragement. This same Jesus, same Jesus who was with God the Father from the beginning at creation, same Jesus who we see in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the Word became flesh, this same Jesus who lived the perfect life, who died the perfect death that I deserve, who rose from the grave, who ascended on high with Christ the Father, understands me. He's able to sympathize with me. That's a huge encouragement. The weight has been lifted off because I now have one who is able to sympathize with me. And it's more than just a person who is able to sympathize with me. This is God himself who came and took on human flesh, able to sympathize with me, a, a lowly human, someone who is the bad news, Christ is able to understand me and able to sympathize with me. No matter what circumstance you have gone through, no matter what circumstance you are currently going through, no matter what circumstance you will go through, our text is clear. Christ is able to sympathize. The man who has took on flesh is able to sympathize with every single one of us. I I once heard it said, and it's a great quote, no matter how deep the pit of sin Christ is still greater. No matter how deep the pit of sin, Christ is greater still. What huge encouragement for all of us. No matter where you have come from, where you currently are, or where you will be going, no matter how deep the pit of sin, Christ is greater still. Christ understands the man who was born in a stable, persecuted, despised, rejected, gone through many physical pains, agony, and ultimately ends up upon the cross, this same Christ is able to sympathize with me. He's able to sympathize with anything I'm going through. He's able to sympathize with my weakness. He's able to sympathize with my strength. It doesn't even end here, though. Christ is our great high high priest, who because of his perfect life, has been able to sprinkle the mercy seat with his own blood. He's not only the high priest, he's also the sacrifice. He humbled himself, he took on flesh, and therefore we draw near 
draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Read verse 16 with me. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice how do we draw near? We draw near with confidence. That's an odd word. We're sitting here talking about the humility of Christ in a book where it's discussing his superiority. And we then get to draw near with confidence. It's nothing that has to do with me, though. It is not confidence in what I have done. What I have done is I have tried as best I can and ended up dead at the bottom of the river walk. Confidence is not confidence in what I have done. Confidence here, we are able to approach the throne of grace with confidence because of what Christ has done. Because Christ has extended his hand to me, given me life, and escorted me to the other side, I am then able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. I love that it's called a throne of grace instead of a throne of justice. It easily could be a throne of justice. Praise God that it's not. Praise God that I'm not approaching what I deserve. Because what I deserve is honestly to be left at the bottom of the river walk. To be left there dead. That's what I deserve. That would be the throne of justice. But I'm able to approach the throne of grace. I did not deserve this. This is unmerited. This is not something that I have accomplished myself but something that has been extended to me through grace. That's huge for me. If it were a throne of justice, then what I deserve is death. But because Christ has approached us with a throne of grace and extends us mercy, whenever, whenever God then looks upon me, he no longer sees me. He sees his son. He sees the escort that I have alongside of me. He sees Christ who goes before me. He does not see my sin. He does not see my shame. Christ can sympathize with both of those, yet he makes a covering for me and extends the path for me to God. Some of you might need to approach this throne of grace for the very first time. You maybe have never approached Christ. You maybe have never heard the message of the gospel. You might need to approach the throne of grace for the very first time. Others of you, you've approached the throne of grace before. You are a Christian. You understand salvation. You understand the gospel. It doesn't stop there, though. We continually approach the throne of grace. Don't ever forget what Christ has done for you. The moment you forget what Christ has done, it becomes a confidence in myself. We do not deserve this. There is nothing I have done that I have the ability or the right to approach the throne of grace. It is only through what Christ has done that I even get to Uh, speak the name of Christ, that I get to approach the throne of grace. Christ offers mercy. The end of 16, very encouraging. It says, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know about you, but I'm always in time of need, it seems. I live in a large city. Uh, our news is unlike your news here in KY3 or Color 10 or whoever you watch for your news station. News in San Antonio is not the best thing ever. San Antonio is a very large city that has a number of problems. Many of those involve death, involve murder. Every single night you turn on the news station, it's bad news. 
there's rarely anything good in there. Looking at our world, we need something. We need someone. We need the throne of grace. I, I teach freshmen, and I get to interact with uh, the high school where I work. And this is a Christian high school, mind you. I'm amazed at the sufferings that many of my students have to go through. Many of my students from the age of my youngest 14 all the way up until 18 years of age. These students go through many times of depression. They go through many times of uh, their parents going through divorce. Many of them had to, have had to experience death of parents. Many of them have parents who are currently going through or have gone through cancer. I sit down with these students and I hear about the terrible things that they've had to go through at such a, such a young age. And it breaks my heart. But we have words of encouragement here in Hebrews. Words of encouragement. Approach the throne of grace and you will receive grace and mercy. Many of you in this room might be going through those exact same circumstances. Things are rough. Things aren't where I had planned them to be. This is not what I envisioned my life to be like. God, where are you? I encourage you, approach the throne of grace. Approach Christ. Approach him in your weakness, and he will give you strength. Pray with me as we approach the throne of grace now. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for everything you have done for us. I thank you, Lord, for the gospel. I thank you that it is good news, Lord. I thank you for your people. I thank you, Lord, that you are the same God of San Antonio as you are of Waynesville, Missouri. I thank you, Lord, that uh, you go before us. Father, I pray for each one of us, Lord, that as we go through many trials, many temptations throughout life, that we cling to you, that we are daily, constantly approaching the throne of grace, Lord, that we continually seek after your faith, your face, Lord, that you continually remind us of who you are, continually bring us back to memory of what you have done for us, Lord, and be a people who proclaim who you are and what your son has done. Father, I thank you for everything you've done. I pray this all in your son's name. Amen.